Welcome to another edition of Stokes and Folks. Uh, I'm Spencer Stokes, and welcome to the 45th day of the Utah legislature. This is being recorded at uh, 3.30 p.m. on uh, Friday, the last day of the legislative session, and I'm going to be joined today because it is because it is the last day of the legislative session. Uh, the next person that will get to weigh in uh, with these bills and this these pieces of legislation will be the governor. And I'm joined today by former chief of staff to uh, uh, Mike Levitt, who was a governor from what years? Rich, two, uh, 1993 to 2003, uh, and. Uh, you were there how many, what was your length of time there? I was there, I was with him from 96 to 203, part of that in the tax commission, most of it in the, as chief, as of, chief staff. of staff. So uh, Rich McKeon, who is a co-founder of Levitt Partners, former chief of staff to Mike Levitt. But I, I do have to say on the, the final day of the legislature tonight, sometime, uh, sometime before midnight, we will hear these words uttered from the Speaker of the House and President of the Senate. Uh, sign, I've always heard it as sign a die. And I don't think, Rich, you probably have never heard it any other way. That's the entirety of the message from me. <laughs> but we have a good friend, Crystal Young Otterstrom, who uh, it considers herself uh, a nerd in Latin. And this is her response. Hi, everybody. Crystal with Utah Cultural Alliance here to educate you on the proper pronunciation of sine die, not sine die. <laughs> Trust me, I was in junior classical league because I'm cool like that and I'm an opera singer. So there you have it. Uh, sine die, I guess. I'm going to continue to say it, sine die. And I suspect we'll also with the legislature. <laughs> But nice try, Crystal Young Otterstrom, to make us all more educated on that terminology. Um, you know, we we all heard uh, the the governor Spencer Cox speak about um, during his state of the state about his uh, approach to being the governor and whether or not he was going to veto any pieces of legislation uh, this this year. And he made the statement that he is going to veto more than his predecessors. And so I'd like to play uh, Governor Cox's clip of his remarks at the State of the State. I'm going to veto some of your bills, probably more than my predecessors. Please don't take it personally. You are going to override some of those vetoes. I promise not to take that personally. It doesn't mean that I'm bad or you're weak. It's simply part of a process, a gloriously messy and inspired process. But there must be no room for contempt or hate. We are friends. We must always be friends. Okay. Rich McKeon, you've been in the room when, uh, when the legislature has ended. You were probably in the room as you were discussing bills, as, as legislators were uh, passing bills, and you, you could tell us the involvement of whether or not the governor weighed in to say, hey, if you continue to go down the road with that bill, I'll be left with no choice but to veto it. Uh, but you were there. You know what goes on when a governor is sitting around the table with his general counsel and staff, chief of staff, to talk about vetoes. What What's the conversation? 
Well, the, the conversation is that there are always a set of bills. And I guess if you were to compile bills, they'd be in the, the, the set of bills that are fairly routinely uh, passed because everybody is in agreement that they represent good policy. There's a number of bills that are in the category of should we? What do we need to do to figure out where these bills are and whether or not they do represent good policy? And then there's a pile of them that begin to 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 migrate to the side of these have got either technical or policy challenges to them, and and you know the the veto process doesn't happen day one; it happens after deliberation. But I think if you were to average out Mike Levitt's vetoes, my guess is you'd see somewhere between five and fifteen vetoes per session. And yeah. that's that actually is pretty high in in the modern veto. Uh, um, governor Herbert, I don't think vetoed that many bills while he was governor. Um, so five to fifteen is actually pretty high, and and it comes with some pain. Uh, you know, it, it was in, intriguing, and I think that you know uh, Governor Cox is clearly one of those people who is intrigued with the, the good relationships between people. And I appreciate that about him. And I think there's a, a lot to commend that. But but vetoes become personal because the constituent base that they operate with is, is really difficult. I, I mentioned that Mike Levitt uh, was confronted in his very first session, after his first session, with a, with a potential veto. They passed on the very last night a piece of legislation that increased taxes for purposes of education. He'd made a commitment during his campaign not to sign any bill that increased taxes. And, uh, and, and was left in, and, and he also had the education constituency behind him. And also pro-education. I mean, yeah, yeah. But- and, and so here's this noble cause confronted with another principle and he le- was left with no purpose, no, no alternative, but to personally veto it. But a lot goes into a veto. That is, you call the people in, you meet with the constituents, the constituents, in this case, the teachers were threatening to walk off the job. And uh, he was confronted with this very difficult situation. But, but you navigate, you negotiate, you bring people together, you call a special session, you work out solutions, you you do it alternative ways. And the way that they did this was they looked at the tax the sales tax exemptions and began to whittle away at those in order to find the resources to fund the education programs that were at stake. But it is messy. When you talk about messy, it is difficult, hard, hand wringing kind of work. Did he? So he did veto that bill then. Yes. And then and then called them back into special session to what, work it out, or did he? He he, he said the the biggest part of a veto is number one, you must you you got to bring the sponsor in. Always disappointment. Then you bring in the constituents who might be impacted by it, and you know some of these vetoes are based on just bad policy and they're a little bit easier to, to, to deal with that way. But when they are confronting a couple of constituents like education and legislature and the public to whom you've made commitments, it becomes a, a real wrestling match to try and negotiate a way forward. And almost universally, Governor Levitt would attach to a veto a governor's letter that explained the purposes, the rationale, and, and the uh, meaning behind what he'd done with an expectation that we would try to solve for the solution for the problem without uh, uh, impacting it in the way that had been demonstrated in that legislation. So he'd been sworn in the 1st of January. Legislature starts uh, soon, soon, soon after that. And the last night of the session, uh, the bill passes. I'm obviously you were monitoring it. 
along the way. They were monitoring this with regularity. Well, actually, I have to tell you, on that particular case, I think this snuck up on them. This was a piece of legislative. Uh, and, of course, you history. weren't there as chief of staff. I wasn't the you, chief at the yeah. time. This is just a perfect example of a collision that happens. It's a rational collision and a reasonable way for people to come back together and try to solve a problem. And, and uh, you know, I think, I think people need to, to know I, this isn't, this isn't one of those things where you just willy-nilly. It does take a lot of time and thought to decide you're going to, to veto something. So just think about this first. The process is different. Right now, tonight the legislature will sign a diet, sign <laughs> off, or however they determine to, to name this. I hope Crystal gets some recognition for, <laughs> for her cultural attributions here. But but the, the, then what happens is that the, the bills go to the Office of Legislative Council, and they are tech, They are read for technical reading, and they are not enrolled until they go through that process. And it's my understanding, you probably know more about it than I do, that they have the ability to make some technical changes, commas and punctuation and things that would make sense and point out some red flag errors that m- might be problems. Uh, so it can take three to five days before those bills come to the governor's office. Now, you've been monitoring things along the way, and you kind of begun to package things up. But at that point in time, uh, at least in the Levitt administration, the bills would, you know, the, the entire team would begin to divide those bills up. They go to governor's office of planning a budget, now management and budget, but planning a budget. And, and they would be allocated by subject matter and expert, and the cabinet would all become involved. And, and then we would get feedback along the way on those bill, bills that were clearly, again, in the category of we got to sign these bills, those that were, were really examining because there might have been a red flag, and those that were beginning to migrate over to the veto side of the line. And you don't have in the case in the case of Governor Cox, he has to uh sign or veto bills by the 25th of March. So, you don't have a lot of time. 20 days and you're you're you've eroded 3 to 5 of those. You got a couple of weeks to do this is what it really matters after the bills are enrolled. I just was having a conversation with someone today that was uh, they were telling me, look, we've put in a request to meet with the governor. And I said, well, that's not going to be happening for a couple of weeks <laughs> <laughs> because they've got their hands full. It's uh, really busy, which is so interesting because the day after the legislative session is the most peaceful day <laughs> in the rotunda that you could ever have. I mean, it is just quiet. It is almost, it's just, it, it is uh, just almost celestial in its quiet. <laughs> well, you've got, I think people don't fully appreciate that during that 45, those 45 days, um, that there are in, in a non COVID year, this is an unusual year, right. but in a non COVID year, you've got marching bands, you have uh, thousands of people in the rotunda and it's not really a place built for sound deafening qualities. It's a giant echo chamber. Yeah. And so I can only imagine the the even even behind the doors of the governor's office you could hear kind of a low churn of noise all day long. Oh, so you talk about quiet noise. This was loud quiet noise. It was just it was just you could just hear it and you could kind of hear when breaks were going on and you could and then you like you say there'd be events that would occur that would that you'd have to peek out the door just to see what was really going on. Yeah, and see this year the 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 constitution was changed so the the session ends Friday at midnight, but in the, you know, not not too distant past, uh, it ended in the middle of the week. Yeah. And so the next day you'd come into work and 
all of a sudden quiet. Yeah, and and quiet, but also now all of a sudden you're you the the, the legislature has picked up their stuff and they've gone home, and the governor's office is now picking up the bills that they put on the table. And you know, there's always well over three hundred bills, and so there's a lot of evaluation. I don't know how many this year. Do you know? I, I will have to wait until uh, sign a die. <laughs> <laughs> um, but tell me, there's got to be what what was uh, one of the stories that. Um, of either a legislator or a constituent group that the governor dreaded calling in to have the conversation. There had to have been some really awkward conversations. I'm going to veto your bill. Yeah, well, let me just tell you, in a universal way, any time a legislator was called in, it was angst and uh, why are you doing this to me? And it, it was in kind of direct contradiction to the it's not personal. Uh, you know, I'm just I'm doing this because and, it, and it's hard to tell somebody and for them to believe that this is really a really bad idea that they had come up with. Um, you know, you it, it it happens so regularly that there's not one story coming to mind, but there really is. It It, it is a very. Uh, kind of touching moment for these people to recognize that they're on the veto list. Did uh, did the governor, did Governor Levitt ever have a bill that he vetoed that was overridden? Yes. Uh, and, and, it, uh, and there was always the threat of an override, but it did not happen until the 11th year of his service. Really? Yeah. And so he was, he was never overridden until then. And that was on a I think it was just at a point where the legislature said, look, let's get together. We got to override one of these bills. <laughs> and so I think they, they kind of did it. And as I recall, it was on a municipal bond action of some kind or something that, uh, and, that they uh, him. And, you know, in keeping with Governor Cox's statement, and did he take it personal? He, and he did not. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a lot easier to not take a, an override personal than it is for a legislator to get the phone call, I'm vetoing your bill. Yeah, so this is a really interesting part of the check and balance, though, and it's a good part of it. And that is the executive ought to have the ability to veto, but, but uh, and, and the, the legislature are all elected, too. It just happens that there's, that, that there's 104 of them. And they, they all have independent thoughts and constituents and things that they want to accomplish. Uh, the, the advantage of the, the governor is that he speaks and his administration speaks really with a single voice. Might be many speakers, but all same, same voice. And it, it, it is a, a singular advantage in that regard. Because you can, you can call a press conference, you can have a media Absolutely. event, you can yeah. end... And uh, rather than 104 people speaking, and it's even it's amplified on the on the federal level because you have 435, so it's much in a much broader population base, geographic base that you have to to speak to. So yeah. here you have you know a few media outlets, one media market. They're going to show up. Yeah, and more than you think. And if the governor calls a press conference, they're going to come. One of the interesting parts about this is the pre budget part of it and it used to be and i don't know if you recall this but there used to be in the first few terms of the uh, first few years of, of governor Love, there used to be a budget speech that he would give be covered and the legislature concluded that that was not a good idea because he was getting all the press there and so <laughs> Levitt <laughs> decided to have budget week and, yeah. <laughs> and he would do he would take the 10 or 12 budget initiatives and so he, are you are you telling me because i i followed this so i i was one of the people who would say to to governor levitt why why do you even propose a budget because you do know that that 
sound you hear after you propose it is 104 paper shredders starting up. That's right. Uh, It's dead on on arrival. Yeah. So, so you're telling me, and and I, that I, I watched him do these budget rollouts like education and economic development, but but that was in reaction to them ending the budget speech. That's right. And so, and, and what he did was, you know, the, the education speech which would be staged with, with students and, uh, um, and at an elementary gonna, school, yeah, I remember them. Yeah, and if you were going to do uh, something to add to the police force, you'd have you'd have police behind you and ten, twelve more people uniformed on the streets and blah blah blah. He they it took was, it from one painful event for the legislature to a to, dozen to exactly a whole week. I remember it. I remember hearing uh, the grousing that would go on by legislators because they were, all the coverage leading up to the session was of the governor rolling yeah. out his budget. Priorities. Yeah, and what used to be a single day of, of budget priority by, by virtue of that speech became a week-long uh, constant dribble of it, and, yeah. and it kind of owned the media, and, and it alerted people to where the governor's going. And you, as you know, you're exactly right. The budget from the governor that goes to the legislature is kind of declared dead on arrival, and uh, then they start working from there. Yeah, it's uh, – now, 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 I don't know what the – I don't know, and maybe – Maybe the the power grid uh, would demonstrate that as well when they fired up all of those, but um, those paper shredders. I I do remember um, during the the Levitt administration that you know these these weekly rollouts or these these daily rollouts of uh, um, the budget, but I also remember the governor spending more time you know, calling legislators down to the office to tell them, hey, this is not going anywhere or, uh, and I also remember the Governor Levitt allowing department heads to speak freely with legislators about the governor's budget that, you know, during the Herbert administration, they put a really strict rule in place that a department could not talk about any budget item unless it was in the governor's budget. Um, you didn't have that. I don't remember that being a, the case but, during but, Levitt. Yeah, but one of the things about the executive is you want people to speak with a uniform voice. And if, if, the, if the cabinet is up there arguing for their own budget needs versus, uh, versus the collective budget, it becomes confusing and difficult. So I'm, uh, I, I, while there wasn't hard, rigid rules, there, were, there was an expectation that you were going to work within the framework of the governor's budget, and I think that was universally kind of adopted as the way we're going to go. We're just, and we would we would have discussions ahead of time about the fact that this is an important component for us, is we want uniformity. We we want you to speak, we want you to work, but we want to do it kind of consistent with this budget message. Well, it's uh, thanks for joining us. I think it gives an interesting perspective on um, uh, the governor and veto. I will tell you, I've been involved in a couple of those discussions over the years, sitting in a room trying to justify why a bill was passed and to try to talk the governor out of vetoing. Um, I won't mention any any bills or governors specifically. We were successful in all cases. However, uh, I do remember the governor telling <laughs> Governor Herbert telling me, I'm not going to veto it, but I'm going to put a letter, attach a letter to this particular piece of legislation that says, if you don't get this fixed, I will veto it uh, next year. Um, and 
and sure enough, we didn't get it fixed and we had to go have that meeting again. It was not a, well, it wasn't a fun, a fun time. Well, this has been another edition of Stokes and Folks. Thanks for joining us. We'll be around uh, next week, wherever you consume your podcast. Make sure you subscribe and like us. It helps people find us and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Rich. And thanks, Connor Sorensen for producing.